This episode of Policing Matters is sponsored by Utility Inc., the innovative technology-enabled service provider recognized for creating groundbreaking digital systems for frontline professions in effectively collecting, analyzing, and managing digital media evidence. You are listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, welcome back. And today we have a special show, maybe a little bit longer than usual. We are going to do our year-end wrap-up, our year-end in review, talk about 10 of the most uh, interesting, maybe salient uh, issues going on in American policing over the past year. And oh boy, what a year it's been. Uh, tailing onto the last two years. Um, but I feel personally, I feel like we're making a turn. I am optimistic about 2023 and what it's going to bring. Um, I, I have a special guest, a returning friend of the program and a great colleague of mine, Dr. Janae Gasparini. Uh, you know her as a police officer, as a uh, university professor in criminal justice. And uh, we, we took the show on the road this year. We went to uh, Kentucky and we spoke at the National Conference for Field Training Officers. And we're going to do it again for ILETA. So if anybody's going to ILETA in 2023, hope to see you there. Come on up and uh, tell us a story. All right. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Janae Gasparini. Thank you, Jim. Always a pleasure. Hey, so uh, emerging forms and strategies in use of force. Use of force has to be number one because of all the things that have happened in the last two years. Last year, we saw you know a lot of uh, national uh, issues uh, around use of force, uh, the carotid uh, restraint being taken away from uh, so many agencies with no replacement. Um, we've seen other things, uh, people pulling back on uh, electric weapons or tasers, as we like to call them. Um, the carotid restraint, the electrical conducted weapons, most of us call them tasers. We've seen, though, a few emerging uh, forms of force, maybe to help replace what we've lost. Uh, I interviewed uh, people from the BOLA RAP, and I know a lot of agencies are looking into it. Uh, several agencies are employing the BOLA wrap. Uh, it's a handheld device, looks like a taser, shoots out to um, uh, wires uh, with barbs on the end. They wrap around the offenders or the suspect's legs or arms or torso, and it wraps them up. It uh, gives officers time to respond. Uh, so many uses for that. And of course, uh, you've got to be really uh, wise about uh, when you deploy that kind of um, uh Restraint, uh, especially with someone uh, who may be armed, um, probably definitely not with uh, a firearm, but uh, edge weapon or something, a blunt instrument, maybe. The glove was another electrically conducted device. It's, they are actual gloves. And uh, at our convention, I met with Jeff, Jeff Nicholas, the CEO and founder of Compliant Technologies. Great guy. He demonstrated them. You put the gloves on uh, with a tap to uh, the glove, uh, they initiate. And when you put your hands on bare skin, uh, it gives the same effect or similar effect as the taser. Um, 
We actually did a show and you can check out the glove from Compliant Technologies. And then finally, what I have is uh, a couple of years ago, I got to interview Henner Gracie from the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu family, the Gracie Academy. And uh, since that time, he has uh, received post-certification to teach Jiu-Jitsu at home oh, more than 25 uh, states around the country I know officers like it, the grappling technique. Um, it it gets officers close in, doesn't give the opportunity to the suspect. And uh, I've heard rave rave reviews. Of course, it's you know it's a perishable skill. You got to stay on top of it. And <laughs> no pun intended. But uh, officers have to continually train to be effective. What do you have in use of force? Yeah, kind of uh, dovetailing with jujitsu, um, just a general comment. I think what we're seeing a lot is this change in our hands-on strategies uh, to kind of better reflect controlling su uh, subjects as opposed to anything that might look like use, uh, excessive use of force or for lack of a better term, a beating. And, you know, again, we can really probably equate this to uh, just uh, fallout from the past couple of years, uh, but not a bad thing. I, I know, for example, in my last use of force training with my department, I learned stapling and uh, I had never done it before. It was new to me, not so new to some of the other officers. Uh, and basically it's kind of like applying all of your body weight to one area. For example, uh, you know, getting a 200 pound guy or 250 pound guy to kneel on the back of your calf, right? Uh, it's kind of getting compliance without uh, anything looking too, too harmful. So in general, I think we're seeing that push. Uh, but with emerging forms and strategies and use of force uh, comes emerging forms and strategies to adequately report these things. Um, going back to 2019, the FBI launched that voluntary national use of force data program. Uh, and then just this year, uh, kind of building on that idea, in 2022, President Biden issued that executive order on advancing effective accountable policing. And basically, it's a push for better documentation and articulation. Uh, leave it to the innovators among us. Uh, we have development of software that are, can be used by agencies on their computer systems, but also apps on um, police officers' phones. Uh, if you have a cell phone issued by your department, um, such as Mark 43 and Thin Blue Defend. And these are platforms that are designed to capture critical details to help prevent a wrongful outcome in a use of force case, looking at things like other officers who are on the scene, the suspect's acts, uh, actions, you know, really trying to, to uh, pin down the uh, most necessary details. So it's kind of going hand in hand with all these changes in use and force, change in documentation. Yeah, you know, you bring up some really good uh, issues on um, what types of force we're going to be looking at. Oftentimes uh, they're thrust upon uh, law enforcement without a lot of evidence-based research behind them. When do you think we're going to see uh, a committee in Congress that says, hey, let's listen from the experts before we uh, you know, make some legislative changes? The carotid restraint stands out to me as uh, you know, a moral panic since uh, George Floyd, where immediately people spoke out against it. It was removed without any... Uh, deference to evidence-based studies or things like that. And since um, I know this year, there's been a study on the in the Northwest, something like nearly a thousand 
uh, uses of the carotid with none resulting in death. Uh, any injuries were related to pre-existing conditions or drugs on board. And that could be argued in, in the Floyd case itself. But uh, what do you think? Any chance we're going to look at the evidence and maybe bring back the carotid? Yeah, I mean, I think that if there ever was a time, it's now. I mean, we'll talk a little bit later on about uh, kind of the knee-jerk reactions and the defunding the police and how harmful that's been to a lot of areas in the United States. I do think uh, members of the public are waking up to see that it's something that has to be more balanced and more informed, and we can't just kind of you know, apply these uh, ideas without something underneath them. So I think we're ripe for it. I hope to see it happen. Um, uh, I feel medium about about it actually <laughs> happening, like say within the next year. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, a lot of these issues are overlapping. And, and, th and this, you know, what you just mentioned brings us into the second important issue, and that is morale and how police morale uh, just permeates everything uh, in activity and in officer initiated activity in officers leaving the workforce in our difficult situation in recruiting new officers to the profession. Uh, what's your take on uh, the hit on morale over 2022? Yeah, the first question I ask myself is, have there really been any shifts since last year? We had our state of the industry survey with 75% of officers reporting morale was down since last year. So between 2021 and 2022. And it, you know, it begs the question, where are we at the end of 2022? Uh, we did take that on a great state of the industry survey uh, with Police One and Lexapol. Um, we tackled that issue in a written roundtable: how to improve officer morale in 2022. And uh, you know, some of the main takeaways there it wasn't too, too surprising, right? It's uh, communication, it's respect, it's fair treatment. It's having pathways between direct line supervisors and officer and officers and having these one-on-one -on -one conversations. And um, I did pull a couple quotes from the state of the industry survey that I think might uh, kind of illuminate this a little bit. Um, three of the quotes that really stood out to me, the, the, the first officer had said, the most stressful part of working here is dealing with the department. I am under constant stress that I will be fired or demoted because someone thinks what I did is not what they would do. Even when things are done with good intentions in mind, the investigation always assumes the officer acted maliciously and destroys them. Um, and then, you know, something as simple as this, explaining the why behind new general orders. Uh, right now they just drop from the sky with no warning. And then having one set of standards for everyone. Every single officer notices when peers are treated better or worse than everyone else, and it destroys morale. And to me, these were very simple, easy fixes. Yeah, I mean, that really resonates with me as well. And I think we, you know, when we create a bail schedule to treat everyone the same, with the exceptions to, you know, the the golden boy or gal within the organization, uh, it, it everyone in the organization notices, and it's unfair. And I had a chief, Greg Sir, who said, you know, he he recommended to all of us uh, in command and deputy chiefs and commanders who review discipline cases. I want to see the difference between errors of the mind and errors of the heart. And if someone acts with malice, then stick to the schedule, give them the time they deserve. If it is an error of the heart, right, we have some restrictive policy that says we do this, 
but you make an exception because the situation dictates it, then you you take that into consideration in, at the point of discipline. In some cases, there was no discipline because the officer did what he was or she thought what they were doing was right. And that's, you know, when you leave people out on the street or without their car in the rain with a baby in the backseat, all those situations, right? So if an officer colored outside the lines a little bit, but did it for the right reasons for the heart, then yeah, they got a pass. So I totally get what this officer says. It, it really resonates. Yeah, absolutely. And just always remembering, you know, our emotional intelligence, it's a human system. Uh, and, you know, just like we are trained to consider these things when we're dealing with subjects on the street and citizens on the street, you know, why not afford that same uh, knowledge base? Because cops are people, people, you know, they know people, you know, why not afford that to your colleagues? Absolutely. What other quotes do you have there? Um, those were the three that I pulled, but I, I think there was such a such a theme in there about communication and just wanting to uh, know why and, and wanting to know, um, you know, the direction of things, having some buy in, having some um, back and forth, wanting that uh, kind of feedback from from supervisors, uh, you know, and I think we use that as a platform to encourage our first line supervisors to, hey, you know what, you actually really matter a whole heck of a lot than I think any of us realize. We're talking sergeants, right? The patrol sergeants. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, but that that theme of communication was permeated the entire verbal response section for sure. Yeah. And I mean, the morale. So, you know, an individual officer can feel a way internally, but then it's it affects us externally as well. And one of the um, numbers that jumped off the page at one of the P1 surveys was only 7% of current officers who responded to the poll, only 7% said that they would recommend policing as a career. Right. And to me, I mean, that really hit me right in the heart. And yeah. I thought, how are we ever going to get out of this mire unless yeah. we start believing in our own organizations, making them better, top-down leadership, right? We we keep talking about leadership from the top, but you know, unfortunately, in 2020, we saw a lot of leaders leave the profession. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of officers may have felt abandoned at that point. Sure. And the off and the the chiefs or sheriffs who did stand up, uh, we saw some of them sanctioned, if not fired. Right. Right. Um, and so, what's the message to the troops? I think it's got to be better. We've got to explain policies. We we have to explain why we do and what we do it for. And uh, you know, I think when it all comes down to it, officers felt like. The only people they were doing the job for was them, their families, and the person in the radio car next to them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Definitely more work to be done. I mean, it's it's a huge, it's a huge challenge. But if we aren't stewards of our own profession, and I do, I think we've all had that situation where we kind of struggle. You know, sometimes I'm in front of the classroom or talking to someone in the public, trying to encourage them toward policing. And in the back of my head, you have those thoughts, you know, and you're just like, oh, what am I, what am I lead? It's like, am I leading sheep to the slaughter? And we kind of have to get around that. Um, and always remember, it's a noble profession. We're on the right side of things, uh, overwhelmingly doing the job perfectly, you know, and, uh, you know, we have to really dig into that, I think, in the new year. Absolutely. <clears throat> and again, item number two, morale, it blends right into our next point, which is the importance of direct supervisors and leadership. Yes. So, 
kind of tying in, we touched a little bit on this, but that underestimation of the importance of first-line supervisors, I was amazed when I was reading through the results uh, that just not only wanting better communication, but actual feedback, requesting, uh, hey, I want to have a sit-down one-on-one with my with my direct supervisor. I want feedback. I want constructive criticism. You know, and I think this signals to uh, you know, to our leaders that, um, you know, what you say and do and think really matters. And you've got a bunch of guys and girls out here that want to do a good job for you, for themselves, for their community, uh, and so on. So that's something you can really um, kind of leverage to your advantage. Uh, again, the wanting of the two-way communication, um, wanting a, or being able to perceive that supervisors care about their officers, uh, that they seek their input when and where appropriate, um, and kind of establish direct lines of, of communication for this back and forth. And then, you know, another thing too that came up quite a bit, and this is, I think, in our own circles, we've heard this time and time again, addressing false narratives publicly, right? We're living in a time where we have these runaway errant narratives. And, um, you know, if you feel like the leader of your agency or your supervisor isn't going to, as I always like to say, quote unquote, lovingly educate uh, someone, uh, maybe a, a local politician or uh, someone who's a part of a community group that that's uh, really kind of putting taking you to task. Um, you know who is going to do it if if your leaders aren't going to do it? And uh, you know, looking at it even beyond the rank and file, it's just you know a healing a healing of uh, these divides and and bringing society together. So I think that could go a long way too. Just feeling like, hey. Uh, I know I'm doing a good job out here as an officer, and I also know that my supervisor thinks I'm doing a good job because they're addressing these things and, and having my back. Yeah, and, and you know, I've talked about it several times over the years of the importance of leaderships uh, not letting the false narrative hang in the air right. or uh, not responding to a critical situation and allowing a narrative to form in social media or mainstream media and the obligation of our leaders to step forward and explain. And I know, you know, the, the hesitancy comes from uh, lawsuits, liability, claims on the department. Hey, we're paying the money anyway. We're paying the money right. when we do, we are right. Right. I just read a, again about two officers responding to a mentally ill situation, a person with mental illness, this situation, you know, the the theme remains out in public, running through traffic, naked, armed, beating a family member. Officers arrive, they try to do the right thing. Uh, the person's injured or they die in the situation. They may have done everything right and the city pays. So leaders get out there and explain all that. You know, otherwise the public sees that, you know, three paragraph article by, you know, quote journalists, or they see a snippet on the news where the neighbors say, oh yeah, it was awful. And, you know, these, this anecdotal reporting doesn't really tell the situation, uh, doesn't talk about all the things involved. And, and then the city ends up paying anyway. So mm -hmm. why not get out there and talk about it? Absolutely. I, to I totally agree. And kind of one of my dreams one day is much like other professional agencies, like when there's a medical issue, the AMA gets out there and they say, this is where we stand on this. And this mm. is why, right? We're, we're the whatever United States police organization, whatever organization 
uh, you want to call it. Um, and this is this situation went this way, and here's why. And here's our evidence-based policing facts and our information of why we trained this way and why that officer did what he or she did. And that's our take on it, because we're also professionals, right? So if mm -hmm. we can have that unification and a big message to send out when things like this happen that, you know, catch national uh, attention. Um, yeah, because I, I think a lot of times it's like the, you wait for the other side and it, it's never there. It just kind of gets swept away. So, yeah. No, I mean, how long did Ferguson go before, you know, the actual accurate details came out and, you know, before then, too late you had, by then. Yeah. Too late. I yeah. Mean, it was... news, news people, yeah. uh, elected officials, uh, sports yeah. heroes, actors, everybody, you know, uh, with the false narrative and yeah, just, yes. and, and I have students who still believe uh, that, that narrative. Sure. And speaking of speaking of my students, and I know <laughs> yes. you've got a, a full load uh, yes. in New York uh, on the other side of the country, but we share uh, similar challenges, I guess I'll say, in teaching today's uh, Gen Zers and the next generation. Uh, millennials are taking up the bulk of the workforce right now. We've got Gen Zs right behind them. What's your take on... Uh, Item number four, issue number four, the influx of Gen Zs into the profession, or at least we're trying to get them into the profession, aren't we? We're trying. Yeah, we're trying. Uh, it doesn't come without challenges. There's so much about Gen Z that we know from the research that doesn't quite fit with uh, some of our policing tenets and traditional policing models. Uh, there are pros and cons to this. And, you know, uh, Jim, you and I have uh, definitely taken this issue to task um, out of a need. I mean, this is navigating Gen Z is kind of what, what we loosely call it. And, uh, you know, this has been a want from supervisors. It's just been a constant question. So we kind of took our overlap with our experience teaching Gen Z in the classroom and, and tried to apply some of what we learned uh, to how we can navigate this new generation of police officers. So one of the first things we say, right, is to meet them where they are and where are they? They're online, right? And we think of this, especially in terms of recruiting and getting messages out there, um, soliciting them a little bit um, online, on their phones, even when uh, they are hired, right? Using technology to engage them and to reach them. Um, as a matter of fact, we just recently here at the State University of New York, where Ulster County Community College, we just acquired um, a simulator and they love it because it's almost like uh, a big video game, you know, and, it, and it, our recruits are loving it. Our students are loving it. And, uh, you know, we hope to do more with that. Um, some of the more positive things about Gen Z, though, that we have come across is that they do want to know the why, and you can leverage that to your advantage as well. Wanting to know why something is the way that it is. It gives you an opportunity to explain it. Um, and speaking of explaining things, uh, one of the other things that we have found is that there's no such thing as over-explaining. And when we approach our new Gen Z officers, we have to remember how were they raised? What were the parenting styles? What was the style in what is the style now in our education system? And we have to understand how they are learning and kind of maximizing that to our benefit. Um, what do you have on that? Because I know we had a bunch of things that we, yeah, we, no, we could I, go on and on, but on and on. And yeah. you know, I've I've been lucky to have uh, resources and and access 
um, learning uh, techniques and teaching techniques. And I should have started out by saying, you know, millennials are the 1981 to 1996 generation. And then Gen Z's are the next 1997 and beyond. And, you know, I'll talk in class about remember 9-11 and I get blank stares or OJ, OJ, that, you know, they immediately think of the juice, not that juice, (laughs) not that juice. (laughs) Right. And so when we talked in uh, Kentucky to the uh, FTO Association, and when we talk about Alita, we're going to talk about the different approaches, multimedia, group learning, uh, low risk learning, right? Uh, I keep hearing, you know, I've had recruiters uh, in my classes this week. I think it's awesome because mm-hmm. um, my classes are some of the few that the, the police recruiters are allowed in. And there, there's real interest among the students, but out of 50 students uh, from the two classes, I think about a dozen or more signed up to take the test. And there was a free waiver on on taking the test. And I think a lot of times it's the fear of failure that, uh, you know, we're missing out on so many opportunities. If we would just demystify the process, let the students know what's coming in advance. And I mean, every step through the system, uh, why don't we give a practice PAT, a physical agility test? Why don't we do that to just let them see what it's like? I mean, you know, students will look at police officers and think, oh my gosh, they probably have to do, you know, one of these uh, American hero competitions, right? Do these rings over fire and water and stuff, right? But if you show them, you know, some of these watered down PATs, gosh, they would realize anybody could do those, right? And then uh, the written, give them a, a practice written, give them up, give them some tips on, on orals. I usually every right. year uh, do an oral boards uh, primer to show students what it's going to be like. Uh, why don't agencies do that? Why aren't there practice tests online? Uh, why don't we demystify the polygraph? They are so fearful of mm-hmm. the polygraph mm-hmm. that, you know, somebody's going to come with a search warrant and break their door down if they say right. something <laughs> they didn't intend to say or... right. So, yeah, um, we do need a different approach and we can't deny it. I mean, for anybody who says, hey, we're going to go with what we've done. And you know that awful quote that I just can't stand. Yes. And it's we always we've always done it this way. Right. And we got to change. We got to change with the times. Um, If we don't, we are going to be dead in the water. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully we can get the point across. Um, posts, I know, are, are starting to embrace the, the idea. Uh, the big organizations like PERF and IACP are seeing the value in individualized training and things like that. And I know there's listeners out there that are like, oh, here we yeah. go. We're coughing yeah. and we're watering down. And, you, you know, there is a point you cannot, you know, drop below the, you know, baseball, it's the Mendoza line. And in policing, you know, who knows what, maybe it's the Miranda line, but uh, we shouldn't drop to the point where we're starting to take people that are only going to be problems down the road. Um, Interesting uh, that someone, um, uh, Kathleen Diaz, who writes the rural badge, yes, Charlie Pitt. Yeah. We were, we've talked online and I want to do a show with her about 
agencies that are taking people with no backgrounds, uh, that no, no testing really, that they're wow. just plucking people off the street. And oh, gosh, I'd love to see the, the data on what happens, you know, in the first two, five, seven, ten sure, years. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that's extreme. <laughs> I mean, I know we have a recruiting crisis, but geez. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. um, no, we yeah. cannot take all takers, right? No, no. It, but it, like you, oh, go ahead, Jim. No, I was just going to say another baseball analogy, right? If if it was so easy, everybody would do it. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. All right, and then. Let me let's talk about virtual reality training. Mm -hmm. It's here. Oh, you know, yeah. again, we're dovetailing from the Gen Z approach. It's something that they've learned in their lifetime. They are so screen friendly. They love mm -hmm. interaction and uh, goals and things like that. What's your take on how we're doing? I mean, it's not your MTV uh, no. reality, right? The robots and the cube uh, fixtures. Uh, talk a little bit about virtual reality. Yeah. So uh, just before totally leaving that Gen Z stuff, uh, again, as a recruitment tool, as a training tool, it's going to do very well with them. Uh, you know, just being used to instant feedback, instant gratification, uh, you know, we we talk about gamification and how they've been awashed in, in video games and technology. So it's great for that. But I was really interested to see how it's being used in other facets of the justice system and other facets of policing and not just for use of four scenarios. Right. So it's formally like that shoot, don't shoot scenario um, at the 2022 IACP conference, uh, the Dutch police introduced the simulation game that they're using to increase impartial policing. Uh, you know, looking at things like de-escalation, mental health crises, um, different drills, mm -hmm. um, the LAPD introducing virtual reality training for officers this year via a company called V Armed. Um, what I also like about this company is that their product measures eye movement and heart rate. And I think there's a lot of opportunities mm -hmm. there for some great research into uh, the physiological reactions of police officers, you know, uh, when we're looking at our use of force science. And then this one really blew me away on the correction side of thing, of things, the RAP Technologies is using societal re-entry enterprise for inmates and it's putting them in situations uh, that they're likely to encounter as they reintegrate into society. And I thought that was really, really cool. Uh, but overall, uh, like you're saying, it's, it's everywhere, it's here, it's the future. Uh, and we have, I think we've only begun to realize the potentialities here by using VR for our officers. Yeah, well, you know, I've done it. I've done both the uh, Axon virtual reality headset and I've done the Vertra. And actually I've done the Bola wrap uh, technology, which is lifelike, um, oh, wow. right? They do the simulation where you go up, you put the, the gear on, you go up in an elevator, you're at the top of the Sears tower and you walk out on a plank and then oh. the, guy, the guy says, okay, just step off the plank. And I, in my mind said, don't no. do it. Yeah. Right. So sure. uh, certainly <clears throat> it cannot take the place of live training. There's sure. so many vari variables mm -hmm. in live situations. Um, but there, I think there's definitely um, 
the benefits of repetition, right? Yes. Repetition and giving you so many scenarios. And if you do, if you do make the uh, instruments and uh, software available to students where they could practice on their own, maybe somebody who needs remedial help in a situation, whether it's <clears throat> hand, handcuffing or approaching someone um, uh, in a suicide situation or with mental uh, health issues or so many other things, if it can make you uh, think about things once you're away from the virtual reality, mm -hmm. you go through the steps, you go, this, and then you you do the what ifs in your own mind afterwards. I think that's a benefit, right? Sure. And I mean, you know, tragically, we've had some training situations where people have been accidentally shot. Now, I don't know how we'll ever move away from that when we mm -hmm. when we do training, except for have a really good safety officer, mm -hmm. make sure you're either using uh, simulation guns or that there is someone there so we don't have the Alec Baldwin, I thought right. it was safe, I thought it was unloaded right. situation. And right. you know that again, that's so tragic. Um, we're going to still need live in-person training. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, going back to the Gen Zs, we have to have a certain amount of stimulation and simulated stressful situations that you probably only get in, in live situations. Mm -hmm. There's some stress in, in virtual reality, but when, when you know you're being judged by a live person and you're interacting with live people and there's unpredictability, that's a sense of stress. Um, yeah, but I think the benefit is there. I do, I do. Mm -hmm. um, there's, it's so innovative now where in the past, um, maybe you'd walk into a big screen, the shoot, don't shoot that you referenced. And it's there in sort of 2D and you can, you know, see the situation and it's happening. That's like, you know, basic math. Then when right. you get into today's VR, it is geometry mm -hmm. and uh, trigonometry. And you are, you know, you can get down on one knee and look under a car that you're searching or go around and, and see something from a different angle. So those are all benefits. And, you know, I, I love the fact that you have private industry getting into policing and we've waited mm -hmm. so long for someone with money to come in and yes. say, Hey, here's a cigarette lighter. You don't have to use us rubbing two sticks together anymore. Cops, you know? Right. Right. It's also great to see a lot of uh, retired law enforcement officers taking a second career in this industry too. I mean, a lot of your uh, use of force folks, uh, defensive tactics folks. Yeah, it's great to see. I mean, even Jeff, he, he's he, well, he's retired military, but even so, I think people that we meet, it's just a nice, like uh, a nice circular um, ending kind of to, uh, to a, to a very pressing need for sure. Yeah. And yeah, to your point, uh, these companies are using police officers to help them understand the shortcomings, the gaps, uh, mm -hmm. what's really needed. They're giving the expert uh, opinion. Uh, Don Redman was a great guest who talked about the drone and live 911 mm -hmm. or 911 live in Chula Vista. Right. And he had uh, just the greatest uh, UAV drone uh, system up and running. And then he gets 
lured away to private industry. But maybe the impact is is going to be better for us as a profession rather than just one small city in California where now he's got impact on drone policy for the rest of the country. Yes. Now, if only government would follow suit with the private industry and use some of our experts before we make new decisions. <laughs> That'd be great. That's our, that's our big Christmas wish. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Hey, and um, before we move on, let's see, I think we've covered everything in uh, virtual reality. Mm-hmm. I know there's more um, and I want to hear from listeners what, what they've uh, seen and and what they think are the you know the benefits and maybe some of the drawbacks. Um, I want to move on to some really serious situations uh, that affect policing, uh, law enforcement officers and their families. But first, I want to take a quick break and thank our sponsor. Utility provides a universe of intuitive solutions for effectively capturing, analyzing, managing, and sharing video evidence. Technologies include a variety of cameras, sensors, devices, as well as situational awareness software solutions for law enforcement, first responders, transportation agencies, and utility providers. To learn more about utility and its technology solutions, visit utility.com. That's U-T-I-L-I-T-Y.com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Dr. Janae Gasparini cop and professor and she's got great ideas we've been talking about uh the big issues for 2022 maybe some glimpses into what 2023 may offer uh transitioning into the biggest issues affecting law enforcement uh police suicide is always near the top um and we've had some great guests on the show um for from blue help um, we've, we've had Karen Solomon, uh, the CEO at, at Blue Help. She's a great advocate. She keeps drumming the, the drum about smashing the stigma, getting help, recognizing um, indicators in your family members or your partner or uh, somebody at work. Uh, a lot of times agencies won't allow outreach. They want the people to come to them. I think that's um, a flawed policy. I think we need to be able to recognize indicators and reach out to people uh, because we know uh, in policing, especially, uh, you know, if you're a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker and you have some real issues with depression or um, contemplating doing harm to yourself, you can get help and nobody cares, right? The the bread's still the same tomorrow. In law enforcement, officers have a real fear that they'll be disarmed or that they'll, you know, be stigmatized uh, not only to, you know, their family but also the people that they work with. Uh, I know you've done some some good research on it. I just want to throw out a couple of numbers I think are really important um, from uh, Blue Help. The numbers of police suicide from 2016. Uh, numbered 151, 2017, 175. We get up to 2020, it was 176. And then 2021, 160. 
So we started to see a little bit drop off. And then so far this year, uh, 131 as of this week counting. So we would show drop offs from 2019 uh, to 2020, 25% drop from 2020 to 2021, almost a 10% drop. And this year, uh, an 8% drop. 2019 was a really significant year in that we've had um, a high watermark of 236 uh, officer suicides. And, you know, like with all statistics, I'm going to temper it by saying, um, you know, there's that dark figure that we don't know. And we're calling um, these numbers as suicides because they've been reported as such. We know there are other, you know, suspicious circumstances where they aren't def definitively categorized as suicides. It is a tough job. It's a job that we can't always express ourselves. We're restraining ourselves. Uh, I think a couple of people have bitten their tongues off in the last two years, just biting our tongues, not wanting to, to speak out about what's been happening and, and what they've seen in, in the media and the social media. Um, what, what's your take? Are things getting any better? You know, I, I, I'm encouraged um, as much as I can be encouraged uh, to, to see since 2019 this drop. And, you know, I have to say, and I know you and I have talked about this too. Um, again, we kind of see other professionals from other fields stepping in here and, you know, reducing the stigma. I, th I, I hope that it's working. I, I do believe that, you know, especially with younger officers and, you know, even, even in conversations with some of the, you know, 20 somethings in, in my department they seem to be, and maybe it's part and parcel with millennials, Gen Z, but they seem to be more aware of the self-care piece of the uh, realities of the job of the, you know, the stigma just does seem to be lessening among the younger generation for sure. And seeing this decline since 2019, I hope we can keep going in that direction. Yeah. So, you know, I keep plugging my own show, but <laughs> we've had so many great guests, you know, you have, the yeah. proud police wife and, um, you know, Karen Solomon from Blue Help. Uh, Marie Ridgway is a therapist in Minnesota, and she has a great program there among law enforcement agencies, a couple that require officers to do an annual check-in. I think that's mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. Go in, talk to somebody. Maybe you'll say something that you didn't realize was brewing underneath, you know, the surface. And she's there to listen. And I don't know about giving advice, but to offer advice or offer resources, offer counseling and help, not only for the officer, but for the officer's family. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the family is our support system, sometimes, you know, not acknowledged in these situations where we think we're just going to tough it out or slug down a drink or do whatever you do when you get stressed out. Right. Um, Still, I think our best bet is with prevention. We've had people like uh, Dr. David Black from Cortico come on the show and talk about things like the real importance of sleep. And I used to know more than a couple of people who said, I'll sleep when I die. And yes. I'm like, well, you're going to die a lot sooner if right. you don't sleep. <laughs> and, true. and Dr. Black really talks about the importance of sleep and shutting down and letting your body repair and letting your mind repair and, and natural sleep as opposed to, you know, 
medication induced sleep or alcohol induced sleep. Those are Mm -hmm. opposite of good sleep, right? He talks about nutrition. He talks about what we eat, what we drink, about the the implications of alcohol and caffeine and how those are real disruptors. I mean, hey, I like a Manhattan every once in a while, but uh, I don't use it to get to sleep. Um, it is not a teetotaling advice session. Right. Is, you know, all things in their place and time, but take care of yourself. Um, you know, get fit, get at least walk, at least, you know, mm-hmm. be able to go for a jog, uh, do something that makes your body feel good, eat good foods, don't overdo the, the caffeine. And I know like younger cops, and maybe it's younger cops that they're slugging down these gigantic cans of Red Bull or right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll say all Red Bull and energy drinks they call them, energy drinks, (laughs) yeah, right. And they're slugging them down. And you know, uh, in the army, they used to call them, you know, the 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 two kinds of pills: the go and the no go pills. And you can't live like that. (laughs) They they will eventually take their toll. So I hope everyone listening uh, at least check in with someone else, get some advice, tell them what's going on with you. Maybe keep a log of how you're doing sleep wise, talk to your spouse or your partner, find out um, if they see any, anything that, that needs attention and, and get some help. And uh, there's, there's all kinds of, numbers out there. We have a national hotline number now. It's 988. And uh, you can pick up a phone in any state across the country called 988 and get some uh, crisis uh, help. Uh, There's Veterans Crisis Line. We'll post these in the show notes. 1-800-273-8255. Cop Line, 1-800-267-5463. And the great thing about Cop Line is chances are you're going to connect with a a veteran retired police officer. And, um, you know, who better might know what you're talking about than someone who's done the job. And, um, you know, we talk about so-called experts and I respect a PhD, but, you know, a 25 year old PhD in, in criminal justice uh, probably never wrestled around with somebody trying to kill them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, you know, talking to a veteran police officer is is worth something. I agree wholeheartedly. It, it really is. It's a niche thing for sure. And I think the message is great. I think the shift from reactive to proactive is great. Um, you know, and again, hoping to see that continue. Absolutely. And let's get that number down. Um, any yes. suicide is a tragedy. It is awful. But let's let's do what we can on the front end and and stop it from happening. You know, it would be really uh, unrealistic to say we're going to get to zero, but that would be my goal. Let's get it to zero. Definitely. Um, You had one of the important issues um, being ambushes on police in 2022. Tell us about it. Yes. So unfortunately, um, uh, not that we want to see anything like this trending, but it has been, these ambushes have been quote unquote trending since 2020. 
to share some numbers, uh, the FOP reported in September of this year that we've had 63 ambush style attacks in which officers were wounded with 93 officers shot, 24 fatally. Uh, that's a lower number of, tax, of attacks than the first nine months of 2021. Uh, however, um, between 2020 and 2021, the total number of ambushes in which police were hurt uh, more than doubled. A uh, couple of things um, from this year to mid-October, we had that one week where 11 officers were shot in the same week. Uh, probably one of the most uh, poignant interviews of the year, Phoenix Police Department Chief Jerry Williams gave an interview after three ambushes in four months on her officers in Phoenix. Uh, she cited staffing and morale issues as a major challenge, major challenges facing her officers. And, you know, it leads us to the question of why is this happening? Um, and maybe allows us to see very clearly how things in the current climate are interconnected. So what do you think plays into this, Jim? I mean, I think it's obvious, but I think it's worth discussing uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, I think back, you know, from 2021, the the Southern California uh, deputies that were ambushed in their car, and I thought that was sort of emblematic to what we've seen. It happened in New York as well. Mm -hmm. Officers sitting in their car um, and the suspect walked up on them and killed them. I mean, we can go all the way back to um, uh, the officer who was uh, shot and killed in Philadelphia by uh, Abu Jamal. Uh, same thing. Uh, right. Sitting in his car, rushed up. Uh, you know, what could you do about that? Well, we know, you know, we want to maintain our situational awareness. Maybe that's a situation or a, a phrase that's overused, situational awareness. I mean, we'll go back to uh, seeking mental health help if we're walking around with our head on a swivel 24-7. But in reality, in those situations, we can uh, watch out for each other, right? Uh, hey, it's a long shift. And we if we're writing a police report or taking a break or watching something on your phone, if there's two of you Let's trade off somebody's alert and on it, right? Um, and not to say that any of those situations uh, resulted as as something like that, but I'm just saying, let's be aware. Let's watch our six. We that's another phrase that we talk about all the time. Watching our six. Well, what does that mean? We we've got to be aware of our surroundings. Um, I think the the message, right? We've talked about over the last four or five years, six years probably, uh, from a large portion of our society that's been saying uh, the mantra of resist, 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 and question authority, and the police are enforcing COVID laws, and the police are making us do this, and uh, you know, terrorists from the 80s are speaking at universities, and there's this sort of revisionist history. And now this is all me, right? This is my opinion. But I think this messaging really has something to do with it. And, uh, you know, this indoctrination or this, um, what did we used to call it when we, when we indoctrinated someone into terrorism, right? Mm -hmm. um, to, to have someone so anti-government and so anti-police that they're willing to write up their manifesto mm -hmm. and then take action. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, there's, you know, the way things are, there are individuals out there who need help. We just saw, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, we just saw the Speaker of the House's husband attacked with a hammer in San Francisco. And uh, this guy came prepared with duct tape and rope and hammers and other instruments. And his plan was, so far uh, to date, he's, he said he was planning to uh, take the Speaker of the House and um, recite his manifesto to her. I don't know what his ultimate goal was, but the idea that people are being stirred up to the point where they take action. And I think, you know, I, I in researching the issue, ghost guns played a big part in a lot of these attacks. Uh, certainly it did on the two sheriff's deputies and others where ghost guns or guns made on a 3D printer, these poly guns, um, they have no distinguishing marks or serial numbers. They're virtually untraceable unless you get a DNA trace. But um, these seem to be weapons of choice in these attacks. And I don't have all of them in front of me. And, and some attacks, we don't know uh, what weapon was used, but at least in some, they have been identified. So uh, I think there is um, a harsh look at the ghost gun industry, and I call it ghost gun, but it's essentially a manufactured polymer gun um, that's virtually untraceable. Um, what's being done, maybe, the, maybe that kind of legislation, uh, in New York, we're seeing a new program that just got spun up by the uh, Mayor Adams, who says, uh, you know, these severe mentally ill people on the street that don't fall into the criteria of a 5150 detention, uh, we're going to mandatorily get them off the street and get them some help. I think that's a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, places like Chula Vista with um, 911 Live, uh, where they're sending drones out in advance of police officers in suspicious situations, right? We've seen ambushes where officers respond to a call that's made up. And uh, we saw, you know, horrific tragedies in Sacramento, where a young uh, officer was shot by uh, a suspect who set her up, who, who called uh, in the ambush. Uh, so getting drones into the mix and in suspicious circumstances ahead of officers. Um, I think those are some things that we can be doing. But again, I think it falls on officers. Be aware of your surroundings. Uh, look out for each other. And, uh, you know, we tell people, we tell uh, individual occupants, if you're getting pulled over on the road and you're suspicious that it's an unmarked car with a red light in the dashboard, uh, just keep driving till you get to a fire station or a police station and, um, you know, don't speed to it, but just, you know, get there, park under a light where you feel safe. Why don't we follow our own advice? And Good if we point. want to take a break, why don't we pull into the nearest firehouse, you know, wake up a Jakey and say, hey, I want to, can I back into your parking lot and sit still for a bit? Right. Uh, there's, there's things we can do. And, um, you know, Pulling into a dark alley with a with a report um, that you're going to type on your computer screen, yeah, maybe not advisable in the current um, situation. Right. Agreed. Yep. And then uh, finally, you know, Dan Marco, one of our colleagues at Police One, he wrote a great article 
on ambush survival. It's a great article. I'll post it in show notes. The takeaway I took was his acronym of March. And he says, move, right? If you are in an ambush situation, move, keep moving. Um, R, return, fire, and reload. Uh, oh, excuse me. Move is your M. A is arm yourself, acquire, identify. He essentially says the OODA loop, right? Right. Observe, orient, decide, and act. So act is your, your second uh, uh, acronym. R is return, fire, and reload, right? Um, we've seen situations where uh, officers have you know, never pulled the gun out of their holster, never fired a shot. They have a full magazine. They have an empty gun, but they have full magazines. C is continue to fight, communicate, contain, and control. And then uh, H, the final letter in the March acronym is help yourself if you need emergency medical care. And so often we are seeing officers treating themselves, uh, triage kits, um, being able to uh, use a tourniquet on themselves. Uh, I think it's great. You, you see these just sensational acts of resilience and determination by officers who have survived these attacks. And we can learn from every one of those. Um, and I think what we see as a pattern is resilience and determination and the never stop um, uh, mindset that these officers have. Definitely. All right. So what do we got next? What's your next? Uh... Well, the next up is refunding the police, which is going to quickly devolve into the next crime and policing as a national issue at midterm elections. Um, so refunding the police, we asked the question, has the pendulum swung too far for most? So we look at cities, um, especially in my neck of the woods, New York City, where we have uh, private citizens saying, come on, you got to do something about this. We have consistent uh, requests uh, to our governor, please change these laws. Um, you know, but I see it as perhaps a positive because uh, maybe kind of circling back to what we were saying before about knee-jerk legislation, um, you know, when these policies actually play out on the street level, uh, you see the stark difference between on paper and in reality. And, uh, you know, again, kind of moving that into our um, crime and policing as a national issue at the midterm elections, uh, I was kind of not in a not in a joyful way, but glad in the sense that I want to see our victims better taken care of and our society safer. I was glad to see it take center stage in many areas that did champion policies and legislation concerning policing that were those knee jerk reactions and not evidence-based. And, uh, you know, now we can begin to have some of these more important discussions. In New York, we are constantly kind of looking at our bail reform implications. Uh, it's been a really weird thing to have uh, politicians and leaders say things like uh, bail reform is, has had no impact on the crime rate or um, the crime rate isn't getting higher. It's very confusing. And when I look into it more deeply, I, I can see where they're getting information from, albeit very cherry-picked information. This might be true in some areas of, I'm using New York State as an example, because that's where I'm in. Uh, but, you know, overwhelmingly the trend is, is not that at all. And, you know, we understand things, you know, the spirit uh, behind bail reform and, you know, not wanting to imprison someone simply because of their economic status. But, you know, when I go into work and I see 
you know, the latest domestic violence case come across where somebody has forced themselves into uh, their partner's apartment. They've strangled her with a robe on her attempted strangulation uh, from, you know, from her robe with the cord around her neck, uh, hit her in the head. And this person was released on an appearance ticket. It just doesn't sit well with me. And again, it's not a personal thing. It's just that, you know, we are, it's counterintuitive because we're sworn to uh, serve and protect. And it just doesn't seem like somebody like that should be walking around. So, you know, kind of looking at things and maybe tempering it a little bit, getting that pendulum a little bit more back to center. Um, I do hope that that is the case. Uh, and I don't know. What do you think, Jim? I'm, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think you're onto something. And I think uh, bail reform yeah, that I mean, that really sticks in my craw. And mm -hmm. and we have these poster children of offenders at first blush. Maybe you get a, a lenient judge who says, yeah, you know, they don't have a, they're a little bit indigent and all things considered. Let's let them out until um, their trial date. Well, we know that, you know, a high percentage do not appear for their trial they abscond right. Right. or they commit other crimes most likely they commit other crimes while they're out mm -hmm. on this no cash bail situation or they are reoffending their victims in the first place and i think mm -hmm. you know what we lose what we lost in this whole police reform debate who got left out we had offenders on one side police on the other right but we really lost count of the victims. Absolutely. And the Absolutely. victims suffered. And we have national programs like Marcy's Law mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Megan's Law. And where, where, at what point did we lose them in this, yeah. in this um, debate? And so I think we do, we do need to go back. And I think we do have jurisdictions looking at bail reform. Is it working? Look at the recidiv. What's the national recidivism rate? Probably something like seventy percent. It's mm -hmm. it's just crazy. And you know, I think to mom and pop who read the newspapers or look at the news, they vote on the general population as uh, the potential for offense. When we know, in law enforcement, we know that there's that hardcore of chronic offenders who will just keep offending until you stop them. And sometimes we need to stop them with incarceration, mm -hmm. incapacitation, remove them from the rest of the population. It's not like every one of us take turns at committing a crime. Uh, you know, right. probably a large percentage of the population is not committing any crime at all. And then we've got this small population that just, you know, they're the ones. And when we get to a situation like uh, fairness in bail. Um, we've got to use something else. I, I looked into the algorithms that were used uh, to base um, releases on bail reform and uh, found some really interesting things. Uh, this one company that was selling its algorithm across the country uh, was found that they sponsored the studies by what would otherwise be seen as a legitimate um, research company, uh, they funded that research. Mm. And th there was no outside research to, to check it. 
And uh, I think we need to do more. We need to be more diligent in looking at these programs and not making them social experiments because right. we are all harmed when it's a social yeah. experiment, right? Yeah, agree. Yeah, the, the cost is way too high and we're, we're really seeing it now. And uh, I mean, truly you'd have to be kind of living under a rock to to think that the, the, these things aren't related. Um, the other the other thing too, and I know I always try to bring this up, but again, we, we're missing these opportunities for lawmaking bodies, uh, people who make policy. Uh, we're missing these opportunities to like jump in there and say, well, hey, you know, we we need a seat at the table here because this is what we're seeing. And, and it does, it has impact when you're like, hey, I'm a police officer in the town of Jonesville here. And this is what happened here last week, you know, to one of your neighbors, one of your community members, right? So uh, as much as possible, uh, and if there are any legislators out there, please, please include the experts from our side. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, when I talk about the system to criminal justice students, uh, I try to bring in the entire system to make a point that as much as the public thinks that the police have the last say in who gets arrested and who goes to prison, there is a huge process in between that initial mm -hmm. arrest and the, the jail door slamming, right? And it's public defenders and it's district attorneys and it's judges and juries and legislators. And yet we keep electing, here in California, we keep electing this one guy who just keeps making these attempts to legalize, 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 if not decriminalize. And, and one of the latest is hallucinogens, uh, a schedule one drug. Um, he cites um, ceremonies and things like that when, uh, you know, are you doing a ceremony on peyote while you're jumping on the hood of a car in midday traffic? Right. With no clothes on right? right i don't know what kind of ceremony that is but we we have to have seen what the harm reduction policies have done to us over the years uh i i believe in harm reduction policies when they're mm -hmm. done right but uh the idea of testing drugs for people providing a place where they can shoot up and you know be seen and sleep and hang out um to uh, in San Francisco, we give away 4.5 million needles a year. Mm. We get about a million and a half back. And, um, you know, these policies, uh, we'll, we'll hear from legislators saying they work, they work. These are, you know, small um, situations. But we recently had a child uh, ingest fentanyl at a, that oh. they found at a playground. Right. And everybody's up in arms here. And it's one case, but if it's your child, that's an important case. Absolutely. Yeah. Just again, reasonableness, you know, kind of middle ground. Uh, I, I guess a positive, I, I can't imagine that we're not going to somewhat modify things, but we've been surprised before. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Bring it back to the middle, if anything. Please. Yes. Okay. And we are wrapping up with... What you're calling, I'm interested to hear about this, the great <laughs> resignation. The great resignation, people leaving and not, you know, not just, you notice we don't use the term retiring, uh, not just at the age of retirement, leaving for other jobs. There was a whole article, I think, I want to say it was in the New York Post, where you have F, uh, NYPD cops leaving for the FDNY. Apparently it's a better deal. 
better gig. Uh, I guess we all knew that all along. But, you know, in any case, just just losing people by not just retirement as was more traditional in the past, but um, career changers, just getting out of the, the system altogether. Um, so the FBI data shows that the number of officers nationally fell from roughly 719 thousand in 2020 to 688,000 in 2021. And we don't have the numbers yet for 2022. But interestingly enough, um, they are anticipating 4,000 NYPD officers expected to retire and resign this year, which is up 42% from September of last year um, to September of 2022 when that, that figure was released. Um, PERF saying hiring of officers has rebounded some in 2022, but resignations and retirements continue to outpace any sort of hiring initiatives. Uh, the creation of staffing emergencies, mandatory overtime, we know where that leads. Um, and, you know, the question, what to do? Can we make this career more appealing to young people? Can we make the job better so that people don't leave at the first opportunity? Um, and, you know, you and I have chatted, like, I don't think we're really surprised by this. You know, why, why are people leaving at such a high rate and why can we not attract um, uh, new officers? Uh, do you have any comments to those ends? Yeah, I think, you know, it's not just an issue with law enforcement, but that's another podcast, right? Yeah, sure. I think across the board, we saw so many people since COVID. Um, and I think <laughs> nationally, I think it's a good thing and I think it's a bad thing when we say, hey, we want to help people that are out of work. We want to, uh, you know, places that shut down restaurants, hotels, uh, theaters, all these other places that shut down where people were making money, uh, earning a living. We shut them down during COVID. A lot of places never rebounded. And so you have the government step in and say, wait, we have funds. We're going to fund you. We're going to grant you. And that means the money's not getting paid back. Right. So okay. I think at some point, you know, we're with the debt, the national debt, and then local and county economies, uh, any support spigot is getting shut down. And I think people are making the realization that they've got to get back to work. Yeah, we've had the great resignation in law enforcement where, like you say, I mean, people who were not able to retire just retired mm -hmm. or they moved on to another profession or they moved on to another agency because they thought, as we often do, that the grass is greener if you get to agency X or right. in a different state. And maybe that's worked out for some. I know some have gone back to their original agency while they still had time. Um, I think things are changing. I think we are seeing, uh, you know, from the president on down, uh, $85 billion in law enforcement support. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of that is refunding from the defunding, mm -hmm. but a lot of it is for hiring new officers. Uh, I think when we take our show on the road and talk about how we use uh, approach in talking to Gen Zers, not only in teaching them, but also in recruiting them, right? Mm -hmm. We've given those um, surveys on Police One where we find out from officers that, especially newer officers, that they signed up 
for community contributions, to represent their community, to do good for their community. Um, salary and pensions are lower on the scale of what they want most. And so we appeal to that, right? And, and when our recruiters came to my class, they talked about, hey, if you want to change policing, change it from within. If you want to be, um, you know, victims uh, centered in your approach, come be that. Uh, if you want fairness, come and be fair. That's what we've always asked for. And I think, you know, the eyes are opened to new recruits when they get there and think, wow, you know, again, it goes back to leadership, not demystifying what we do in law enforcement to the public. And uh, I think the, the more we do that and the more we show um, that we are fair in what we do, that we do have well thought out policies, that we do evidence-based research in enforcement plans, that <clears throat> zero tolerance policies are not um, our staple in, in law enforcement, that they're well thought out, that we use uh, data, that we use crime maps, uh, that we we really take uh, consideration in what we do and how it will impact the community and oftentimes bring the community as stakeholders to our plans. I mean, we're not an occupying army. We should never think that way. We should never think about going over, taking over city and imposing our will on them. We need, I mean, we go to 1822, Sir Robert Peel. He right. talks in, in all of his nine Peelian principles about the community, the community, the community, prevention, prevention, you know, the police of the community and the community are the police and prevention is a better measure at our effectiveness uh, rather than the number of arrests we make. And I think, you know, we should go back to some of our roots in, in what we do and why we do it and then explain to the community uh, as opposed to hunkering down, getting in our, you know, Batman cape and and being separate from the community. We've got it. We've got it. Like you say, it's counterintuitive, but we've got to embrace the community and explain what we do. Agreed. And we have a lot to be proud of and really nothing to hide, you know? Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> you said it's a noble profession. I believe it. I encourage anyone to enter the field uh, to be the best you can be. I want to thank uh, our listeners, wrap up and, and thank our listeners for listening, for what they do, uh, for the support of their families and for allowing you to uh, police our communities. Um, I do want to say, watch your six, right? That overused phrase, have situational awareness, be safe. Uh, look ahead to 2020 thing, 2023. I think things are going in the right direction. I hope you do too. I hope you see hope. Uh, any last words from you, Janae? Oh, just uh, thank you again. I echo your sentiments and thanking our colleagues. Uh, best of the best out there and wishing you a happy, healthy, productive uh, new year. And um, let's keep it going. I agree. Positive directions. All right. And to our listeners out there, thanks again for listening. Hope to talk to you again real soon. Have a safe holiday. And I'm going to say it, probably can't say it in a lot of, uh, places around the country. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Enjoy the holidays. Stay safe. I know a lot of you are going to be working on these holidays away from your families. Hope you can spend some time with them and, uh, and be safe. Take good care. I'm Jim Dudley. Bye.